As far as I can see, every seat is filled, except a few right there in the back. There's room for improvement. <laughs> but there's also a courtesy to those who might be just a bit tardy because of the traffic to find a seat when they come. This is a great day, conference day. We've heard a beautiful choir sing magnificent music. Every time I hear the choir and hear the organ or hear the piano, I think of my mother who said, I love all the accord that's been given you, all the degrees you've obtained, and all the work you've done. My only regret is that you didn't stay with the piano. Thanks, Mother. <laughs> I wish I had. How good it is, though, my brothers and sisters, to welcome you to the 182nd Semi-Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Since we met six months ago, three new temples have been dedicated. One temple has been rededicated. In May, it was my privilege to dedicate the beautiful Kansas City, Missouri Temple to attend the cultural celebration associated with it. I will mention the celebration in greater detail in my remarks tomorrow morning. In June, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf dedicated the long-awaited temple in Manaus, Brazil. And in early September, President Henry B. Eyring rededicated the newly refurbished temple in Buenos Aires, a temple which I had the privilege to dedicate nearly 27 years ago. Just two weeks ago, President Boyd K. Packer dedicated the lovely Brigham City Temple in the hometown where he was born and raised. As I've indicated previously, no church-built facility is more important than a temple. And we're pleased to have 139 temples in operation throughout the world, with 27 more announced or under construction. We're grateful for these sacred edifices and the blessings they bring into our lives. This morning, I'm pleased to announce two additional temples, which in coming months and years will be built in the following locations, Tucson, Arizona, and Arequipa, Peru. Details concerning these temples will be provided in the future as necessary permits and approvals are obtained. Brothers and sisters, I now turn to another matter, namely missionary service. For some time, the First Presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have allowed young men from certain countries to serve at the age of 18 when they're worthy, able, have graduated from high school, and expressed a sincere desire to serve. This has been a country-specific policy and has allowed thousands of young men to serve honorable missions and also fulfill required military obligations and educational opportunities. Our experience with these 18-year-old missionaries 
has been positive. The mission presidents report that they are obedient, faithful, mature, and serve just as competently as do the older missionaries who serve in the same missions. Their faithfulness, obedience, and maturity have caused us to desire the same option of earlier missionary call for all young men, regardless of the country from which they come. I am pleased to announce that effective immediately, all <coughs> worthy and able young men who graduated from high school or as equivalent, regardless of where they live, will have the option of being recommended for missionary service beginning at the age of 18 instead of age 19. I am not suggesting that all young men will or should serve at this earlier age, rather based on individual circumstances, as well as upon a determination by priesthood leaders. This option is now available. As we have prayerfully pondered the age at which young men may begin their missionary service, we have also given consideration to the age at which a young woman might serve. Today, I am pleased to announce that able, worthy young women who have the desire to serve may be recommended for missionary service beginning at age 19 instead of age 21. We affirm that missionary work is a priesthood duty, and we encourage all young men who are worthy and who are physically able and mentally capable to respond to the call to serve. Many young women also serve, but they are not under the same mandate to serve as are the young men. We assure the young sisters of the Church, however, that they make a valuable contribution as missionaries, and we welcome their service. We continue to need many more senior couples. As your circumstances allow, and as you are eligible for retirement, and as your health permits, I encourage you to make yourselves available for full-time missionary service. Both husband and wife will have a greater joy as they together serve our Father's children. Now, my brothers and sisters, <clears throat> may we listen attentively to the messages which will be presented during the next two days, that we may feel the Spirit of the Lord and gain the knowledge He would desire for us, that this may be our experience, each and every one. I pray earnestly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. President Monson, we love you. Thank you for the inspired and historic announcement on the building of new temples and missionary service. Because of them, I'm sure great blessings will come to us and to many future generations. My dear brothers and sisters, my dear friends, we are all mortal. I hope this does not come as a surprise to any of us. None of us will be on earth very long. 
we do have a number of precious years which, in the eternal perspective, barely amount to the blink of an eye. And then we depart. Our spirits are taken home to the God who gave us life. We lay our bodies down and leave behind the things of this world as we move to the next realm of our existence. When we are young, it seems that we will live forever. We think there is a limitless supply of sunrises waiting just beyond the horizon, and the future looks to us like an unbroken road stretching endlessly before us. However, the older we get, the more we tend to look back and marvel at how short that road really is. We wonder how the years could have passed so quickly, and we begin to think about the choices we made and the things we have done. In the process, we remember many sweet moments that give warmth to our souls and joy to our hearts. But we also remember the regrets, the things we wish we could go back and change. A nurse who cares for the terminally ill says that she has often asked a simple question of her patients as they prepared to depart this life. Do you have any regrets, she would ask. Being so close to that final day of mortality often gives clarity to thought and provides insight and perspective. So when these people were asked about their regrets, they opened their hearts. They reflected about what they would change if only they could turn back the clock. As I considered what they had said, it struck me how the foundational principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ can affect our life's direction for good if only we will apply them. There's nothing mysterious about the principles of the gospel. We have studied them in the scriptures, we have discussed them in Sunday school, and we have heard them from the pulpit many times. These divine principles and values are straightforward and clear. They're beautiful, profound, and powerful. And they can definitely help us to avoid future regrets. Perhaps the most universal regret dying patients expressed was that they wished they had spent more time with the people they love. Men in particular sang this universal lament. They deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the daily treadmill of work. Many had lost out on choices and memories that come from spending time with family and friends. They missed developing a deep connection with those who meant the most to them. Isn't it true that we often get so busy? And sad to say, we often even wear our busyness as a badge of honor, as though being busy by itself was an accomplishment or a sign of a superior life. Is it? 
I think of our Lord and exemplar, Jesus Christ, and his short life among the people of Galilee and Jerusalem. I've tried to imagine him bustling between meetings or multitasking to get a list of urgent things accomplished. I can't see it. Instead, I see the compassionate and caring Son of God purposefully living each day. When he interacted with those around him, they felt important and loved. He knew the infinite value of the people he met. He blessed them, ministered to them. He lifted them up, healed them. He gave them the precious gift of his time. In our day, it is easy to merely pretend to spend time with others. With a click of a mouse, we can connect with thousands of friends without ever having to face a single one of them. Technology can be a wonderful thing, and it is very useful when we cannot be near our loved ones. My wife and I live far away from precious family members. We know how that is. However, I believe that we are not headed in the right direction, individually and as a society, when we connect with family or friends mostly by reposting humorous pictures, forwarding trivial things, or linking our loved ones to sites on the Internet. I suppose there's a place for this kind of activity, and it's fun at times. But how much time are we willing to spend on it? If we fail to give our best personal self and undivided time to those who are truly important to us, one day we will regret it. Let us resolve to cherish those we love by spending meaningful time with them, doing things together, and cultivating treasured memories. Another regret people expressed was that they failed to become the person they felt they could and should have been. When they look back on their lives, they realize that they never lived up to their potential, that too many songs remained unsung. And I'm not speaking here of climbing the ladder of success in our various professions. That ladder, no matter how lofty it may appear on this earth, barely amounts to a single step in the great eternal journey awaiting us. Rather, I am speaking of becoming the person God, our Heavenly Father, intended us to be. We arrive in this world, as the poet said, trailing clouds of glory from a pre-mortal sphere. Our Heavenly Father sees our real potential. He knows things about us that we do not know ourselves. He prompts us during our lifetime to fulfill the measure of our creation, to live a good life, and to return to his presence. Why then do we devote so much of our time and energy to things that are so fleeting, so inconsequential, and so superficial? Do we refuse to see the folly in, pers in the pursuit of the trivial and the transient? 
Would it not be wiser for us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, or where thieves do not break through nor steal? How do we do this? By following the example of our Savior, by incorporating his teachings in our lives, daily lives, by truly loving God and our fellow man. We certainly cannot do this with dragging our feet, staring at our watch, complaining as we go approach to discipleship. When it comes to living the gospel, we should not be like the boy who dipped his toe in the water and then claimed he went swimming. As sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, we are capable of so much more. For that, good intentions are not enough. We must do. Even more important, we must become what Heavenly Father wants us to be. Declaring our testimony of the gospel is good, but being a living example of the restored gospel is better. Wishing to be more faithful to our covenants is good. Actually, being faithful to sacred covenants, including living a virtuous life, paying our tithes and offerings, keeping the word of wisdom, and serving those in need, is much better. Announcing that we will dedicate more time for family prayer, scripture study, and wholesome family activities is good. But actually doing all these things steadily will bring heavenly blessings to our lives. Discipleship is a pursuit of holiness and happiness. It is the path to our best and happiest self. Let us resolve to follow the Savior and work with diligence to become the person we were designed to become. Let us listen to and obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. As we do so, Heavenly Father will reveal to us things we never knew about ourselves. He will illuminate the path ahead and open our eyes to see our unknown and perhaps unimagined talents. The more we devote ourselves to, to the pursuit of holiness and happiness, the less likely we will be on the path to regrets. The more we rely on the Savior's grace, the more we will feel that we are on the track our Father in Heaven has intended for us. Another regret of those who knew they were dying may be somewhat surprising. They wished they had let themselves be happier. So often we get caught up in the illusion that there is something just beyond our reach that would bring us happiness, a better family situation, a better financial situation, or the end of a challenging trial. The older we get, the more we look back and realize that external circumstances don't really matter or determine our happiness. We do matter. We determine our happiness. You and I are ultimately in charge of our happiness. My wife Harriet and I love 
riding our bicycles. It is wonderful to get out and enjoy the beauties of nature. We have certain routes we like to bike, but we don't pay too much attention to how far we go or how fast we travel in comparison with other riders. However, occasionally, I think we should be a bit more competitive. <laughs> I even think we could get a better time or ride at a higher speed if only we pushed ourselves a little more. And then sometimes I even make the big mistake of mentioning this idea to my wonderful wife. <laughs> now, her typical reaction to my suggestions of this nature is always very kind, very clear, and very direct. She smiles and says, Dieter, it's not a race, it's a journey. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> How right she is. Sometimes in life, we become so focused on the finish line that we fail to find joy in the journey. I don't go cycling with my wife because I'm excited about finishing. I go because the experience of being with her is sweet and enjoyable. Doesn't it seem foolish to spoil sweet and joyful experiences because we're constantly anticipating the moment when they will end? Do we listen to beautiful music, waiting for the final note to fade because we, before we allow ourselves to truly enjoy it? No. We listen and connect to the variations of melody, rhythm, and harmony throughout the composition. Do we say our prayers with only the amen or the end in mind? Of course not. We pray to be close to our Heavenly Father to receive his spirit and feel his love. We shouldn't wait to be happy until we reach some future point only to discover that happiness was already available all the time. Life is not meant to only be appreciated in retrospect. This is the day which the Lord hath made, the psalmist wrote. Rejoice and be glad in it. Brothers and sisters, no matter our circumstances, no matter our challenges or trials, there is something in each day to embrace and cherish. There is something in each day that can bring gratitude and joy, if only we will see and appreciate it. Perhaps we should be looking less with our eyes and more with our hearts. I love the quote, one sees clearly only with a heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes. We are commanded to give thanks in all things. So isn't it better to see with our eyes and hearts even the small things we can be thankful for rather than magnifying the negative in our current condition? The Lord has promised, He who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added to Him even an hundredfold. Brothers and sisters, with the bountiful blessings of our Heavenly Father, His generous plan of salvation, the supernal truth of the restored gospel, and the many beauties of this mortal journey, have we not reason to rejoice? 
Let us resolve to be happy regardless of our circumstances. One day we will take, we will take that unavoidable step and cross from this mortal sphere into the next estate. One day we will look back at our lives and wonder if we could have been better, made better decisions, or used our time more wisely. To avoid some of the deepest regrets of life, it would be wise to make some resolutions today. Therefore, let us resolve to spend more time with those we love, resolve to strive more earnestly to become the person God wants us to be, resolve to find happiness regardless of our circumstances. It is my testimony that many of the deepest regrets of tomorrow can be prevented by following the Savior today. If we have sinned or made mistakes, if we have made choices that we now regret, there is the precious gift of Christ's atonement through which we can be forgiven. We cannot go back in time and change the past, but we can repent. The Savior can wipe away our tears of regret and remove the burden of our sins. His atonement allows us to leave the past behind and move forward with clean hands, with a pure heart, and a determination to be better and to do better and especially to become better. Yes, this life is passing swiftly. Our days seem to fade quickly, and death appears frightening at times. Nevertheless, our spirit will continue to live and will one day be united with our resurrected body to receive immortal glory. I bear solemn witness that because of the merciful Christ, we will all live again and forever. Because of our Savior and Redeemer, one day we will truly understand and rejoice in the meaning of the words, the sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. The path toward fulfilling our divine destiny as sons and daughters of God is an eternal one. My dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, we must begin to walk that eternal path today. We cannot take for granted one single day. I pray that we will not wait until we are ready to die before we truly learn to live. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers, sisters, and friends, we extend our love and greetings to each of you. We are thrilled with President Thomas S. Monson's announcement this morning, which adjusts the minimum age for missionary service to 18 for young men and 19 for young women. Through this option, more of our youth may enjoy the blessings of a mission. Two years ago, and powerfully reaffirmed again this morning, President Monson has declared that every worthy, able young man should prepare to serve a mission. Missionary service is a priesthood duty, an obligation the Lord expects of us who have been given so very much. Again, he explained that for young sisters, 
A mission is a welcome option, but not a responsibility. And again, he invited many more mature couples to serve. Preparation for a mission is important. A mission is a voluntary act of service to God and humankind. Missionaries support that privilege with their personal savings. Parents, families, friends, and donors to the General Missionary Fund may also assist. All missionaries, younger and older, serve with a sole hope of making life better for other people. The decision to serve a mission will shape the spiritual destiny of the missionary, his or her spouse, and their posterity for generations to come. A desire to serve is a natural outcome of one's conversion, worthiness, and preparation. In this great worldwide audience, Many of you are not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and know very little about us and our missionaries. You are here or tuned in because you want to know more about the Mormons and what our missionaries teach. As you learn more about us, you will find that we share many of the same values. We encourage you to keep all that is good and true and then see if we can add more. In this world filled with challenges, we do need help from time to time. Religion, eternal truth, and our missionaries are vital parts of that help. Our young missionaries set aside their education, occupation, dating, and whatever else young adults would typically be doing at this stage of life. For 18 to 24 months, they put it all on hold because of their deep desire to serve the Lord. And some of our missionaries serve in their more mature years of life. I know their families are blessed. In our own family, eight are currently serving as full-time missionaries—three daughters, their husbands, one granddaughter, and one grandson. Some of you may wonder about the name Mormon. It's a nickname for us. It is not our real name, though we are widely known as Mormons. The term is derived from a book of sacred scripture known as the Book of Mormon. The true name of the Church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is the reestablished original Church of Jesus Christ. When he walked upon the earth, he organized his Church. He called apostles, seventies, and other leaders to whom he gave priesthood authority to act in his name. After Christ and his apostles passed away, men changed the ordinances and doctrine. The original Church and the priesthood were lost. After the Dark Ages and under the direction of Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ brought back His Church. Now it lives again, restored and functioning under His divine direction. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ and teach of Him. We know that after His glorious triumph over death, the resurrected Lord appeared to His disciples 
on numerous occasions. He ate with them. He walked with them. Before his final ascension, he commissioned them to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The apostles heeded that instruction. They also called upon others to help them fulfill the Lord's command. Today, under the direction of modern apostles and prophets, that same charge has been extended to missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These missionaries serve in more than 150 nations. As representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, they strive to fulfill that divine command, renewed in our day by the Lord himself, to take the fullness of the gospel abroad and bless the lives of people everywhere. Missionaries in their late teens or early 20s are young in the ways of the world, but they are blessed with gifts, such as the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, and testimonies of the truth that make them powerful ambassadors of the Lord. They share the good news of the gospel that will bring true joy and everlasting happiness to all who heed their message. And in many instances, they do so in a country and a language foreign to them. Missionaries strive to follow Jesus Christ in both word and deed. They preach of Jesus Christ and of his atonement. They teach of the literal restoration of Christ's ancient church through the Lord's first Latter-day prophet, Joseph Smith. You may have previously encountered or even ignored our missionaries. My hope is that you will not fear them, but learn from them. They can be a heaven-sent resource to you. That happened to Jerry, a Protestant gentleman in his mid-60s who lives in Mesa, Arizona. Jerry's father was a Baptist minister, his mother a Methodist minister. One day, Jerry's close friend Priscilla shared with him the pain she felt from the death of her child during childbirth and a bitter divorce that occurred shortly thereafter. Struggling as a single mother, Priscilla has four children, three daughters and a son. As she opened her heart to Jerry, she confessed that she was thinking of taking her own life. With all the strength and love Jerry could muster, he tried to help her understand that her life had value. He invited her to attend his church, but Priscilla explained that she had given up on God. Jerry did not know what to do. Later, while watering trees in his yard, this man of faith prayed to God for guidance. As he prayed, he heard a voice in his mind saying, Stop the boys on the bikes. Jerry, a little bewildered, wondered what this meant. 
As he reflected on this impression, he gazed up the street and saw two young men in white shirts and ties riding bicycles toward his home. Stunned by this coincidence, he watched them ride by. (laughs) Then, realizing the situation required him to act, he shouted out, Hey, you, please stop. I need to talk to you. With a puzzled but excited look, the young men stopped. As they approached, Jerry noticed that they wore name tags identifying them as missionaries in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jerry looked at them and said, This may sound a little weird, but I was praying and was told to stop the boys on the bikes. I looked up the street, and here you are. Can you help me? The missionary smiled and said, Yes, I'm sure we can help you. Jerry explained the worrisome plight of Priscilla. Soon the missionaries were meeting with Priscilla, her children, and Jerry. They discussed the purpose of life and God's eternal plan for them. Jerry, Priscilla, and her children grew in faith through sincere prayer, their study of the Book of Mormon, and the loving fellowship with members of the Church. Jerry's already strong faith in Jesus Christ grew even stronger. Priscilla's doubts and thoughts of suicide turned to hope and happiness. They were baptized and became members of Christ's restored church. Yes, missionaries can help in many ways. For example, some of you might might want to know more about your ancestors. You may know the names of your parents and your four grandparents. But what about your eight great-grandparents? Do you know their names? Would you like to know more about them? Ask the missionaries. They can help you. They have ready access to the vast family history records of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some of you are members but not presently participating. You love the Lord and often think of returning to His fold, but you don't know how to start. I suggest that you ask the missionaries. They can help you. They can also help by teaching your loved ones. We and the missionaries love you and desire to bring joy and the light of the gospel back into your lives. Some of you may want to know how to conquer an addiction or live longer and enjoy better health. Ask the missionaries. They can help you. Independent studies have shown that as a group, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are a healthy lot. Their death rates are among the lowest and their longevity greater than any yet reported in any well-defined group studied over a lengthy period of time. Some of you may feel that life is busy and frenetic, yet down deep in your heart you feel a gnawing emptiness without direction or purpose. 
Ask the missionaries. They can help you. They can help you to learn more about the true purpose of life, why you were here on earth, and where you were going after death. You can learn how the restored gospel of Jesus Christ will bless your life beyond anything you can presently even imagine. If you have concerns about your family, ask the missionaries. They can help you. Strengthening marriages and families is of utmost importance to Latter-day Saints. Families can be together forever. Ask the missionaries to teach you how this is possible for your family. Missionaries can also help you with your desire for greater knowledge. The human spirit yearns for enlightenment. Whether truth comes from a scientific laboratory or by revelation from God, we seek it. The glory of God indeed is intelligence. Increase in learning includes spiritual as well as temporal knowledge. We stress the importance of understanding sacred scripture. An independent study recently found that Latter-day Saints were the most knowledgeable about Christianity and the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible better, to understand the Book of Mormon better, and gain a broader comprehension of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, ask the missionaries. They can help you. Many of you have a deep desire to help people in need. Because we follow Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints are also compelled by that insatiable urge. Anyone may join with us to help the needy and provide relief to victims of disaster anywhere in the world. If you want to participate, ask the missionaries. They can help you. And if you want to know more about life after death, about heaven, about God's plan for you, if you want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, His atonement, and the restoration of His church as it was originally established, ask the missionaries. They can help you. I know that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. His church has been restored. Fervently, I pray that God may bless each of you and each of our precious missionaries. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. While serving as a young missionary in Chile, my companion and I met a family of seven in the branch. The mother attended every week with her children. We assumed that they were longtime members of the Church. After several weeks, we learned that they had not been baptized. We immediately contacted the family and asked if we could come to their home and teach them. The father was not interested in learning about the gospel, but had no objection to our teaching his family. Sister Ramirez advanced rapidly through the lessons. She was anxious to learn all the doctrine that we taught. One evening, as we were discussing infant baptism, we taught that little children are innocent and have no need for baptism. We invited her to read in the book of Moroni. Behold, I say unto you, that this thing shall ye teach, repentance and baptism unto those who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Yea, teach parents that they must repent and be baptized, and humble themselves as their little children, and they shall all be saved with their little children. And their little children need no repentance, neither baptism, 
Behold, baptism is unto repentance, to the fulfilling the commandments, unto the remission of sins. But little children are alive in Christ, even from the foundation of the world. If not so, God is a partial God and also a changeable God and a respecter to persons. For how many little children have died without baptism? After reading this scripture, Sister Ramirez began sobbing. My companion and I were confused. I asked, Sister Ramirez, have we said or done something that has offended you? She said, Oh, no, Elder, you haven't done anything wrong. Six years ago, I had a baby boy. He died before we could have him baptized. Our priest told us that because he had not been baptized, that he would be in limbo for all eternity. For six years, I have carried that pain and guilt. After reading this scripture, I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that it is true. I have felt a great weight taken off of me, and these are tears of joy. I was reminded of the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, who taught this comforting doctrine. The Lord takes away many, takes away, the Lord takes many away, even in infancy, that they may escape the envy of man and the sorrows and the evils of this present world. They were too pure, too lovely to live on earth. Therefore, if rightly considered, instead of mourning, we have reason to rejoice, as they are delivered from evil, and we shall soon have them again. After six years of suffering almost unbearable grief and pain, the true doctrine revealed by a loving Father in heaven through a living prophet brought sweet peace to this tormented woman. Needless to say, Sister Ramirez and her children, who were eight years and older, were baptized. I remember writing to my family expressing the gratitude that I felt in my heart for the knowledge of this and so many other plain and precious truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. I never dreamed how this wonderful true principle would come back to me in future years and prove to be my balm of Gilead. I would like to speak to those who have lost a child and have asked the question, Why me? or maybe even questioned your own faith in a loving Father in heaven. It is my prayer that by the power of the Holy Ghost I may bring some measure of hope, of peace, and of understanding. It is my desire to be an instrument in in bringing about a restoration of your faith in our loving Father in heaven, who knows all things and allows us to experience trials so that we can come to know and love Him and understand that without Him we have nothing. On February 4th of 1990, our third son and sixth child was born. We named him Tyson. He was a beautiful little boy, and the family greeted him with open hearts and open arms. His brothers and sisters were so proud of him. We all thought that he was the most perfect little boy who had ever been born. When Tyson was eight months old, he aspirated a piece of chalk that he had found on the carpet. The chalk lodged in Tyson's throat, and he quit breathing. His older brother brought Tyson upstairs frantically calling, The baby won't breathe. The baby won't breathe. We began to administer CPR and called 911. The paramedics arrived and rushed Tyson to the hospital. In the waiting room, we continued in fervent prayer as we pled to God for a miracle. After what seemed a lifetime, the doctor came into the room and said, I am so sorry. There is nothing more we can do. Take all the time you need. She then left. 
As we entered the room where Tyson lay, we saw our lifeless little bundle of joy. It seemed as though he had a celestial glow around his little body. He was so radiant and pure. At that moment, it felt as if our world had come to an end. How could we return to the other children and somehow try to explain that Tyson wasn't coming home? I will speak in the singular as I, re- the singular as I relate the rest of this experience. My angel wife and I experienced this trial together, but I am inadequate in expressing the feelings of a mother and would not even try to do so. It is impossible to describe the mixture of feelings that I had at that point in my life. Most of the time I felt as if I were in a bad dream and that I would soon wake up and this terrible nightmare would be over. For many nights I didn't sleep. I often wandered in the night from one room to the other, making sure that our other children were all safe. Feelings of guilt racked my soul. I felt so guilty. I felt dirty. I was his father. I should have done more to protect him. If only I would have done this or that. Sometimes even today, 22 years later, those feelings begin to creep into my heart, and I need to get rid of them quickly because they can be destructive. About a month after Tyson died, I had an interview with Elder Dean L. Larson. He took the time to listen to me, and I will always be grateful for his counsel and love. He said, I don't think the Lord would, have you want, would want you to punish yourself for the death of your little boy. I felt the love of my Heavenly Father through one of His chosen vessels. However, tormenting thoughts continued to plague me, and I soon began to feel anger. This isn't fair. How could God do this to me? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? I even felt myself get angry with people who were just trying to comfort us. I remember friends saying, I know how you feel. I would think to myself, you have no idea how I feel. Just leave me alone. I soon found that self-pity can also be very debilitating. I was ashamed of myself for having thought unkind thoughts about dear friends who were only trying to help. As I felt the guilt, anger, and the self-pity trying to consume me, I prayed that my heart could change. Through very personal, sacred experiences, the Lord gave me a new heart. And even though it was still lonely and painful, my whole outlook changed. I was given to know that I had not been robbed, but rather that there was a great blessing awaiting me if I would prove faithful. My life started to change, and I was able to look forward with hope rather than look backward with despair. I testify that this life is not the end. The spirit world is real. The teachings of the prophets regarding life after death are true. This life is but a transitory step forward on our journey back to our Heavenly Father. Tyson has remained a very integral part of our family. Through the years, it has been wonderful to see the mercy and kindness of a loving Father in Heaven who has allowed our family to feel in very tangible ways the influence of Tyson. I testify that the veil is thin. The same feelings of loyalty, love, and family unity don't end as our loved ones pass to the other side. Instead, those feelings are intensified. Sometimes people will ask, how long did it take you to get over it? The truth is, you will never completely get over it until you are together once again with your departed loved ones. I will never have a fullness of joy until we are reunited in the morning of the first resurrection. 
For man is spirit, the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy, and when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. But in the meantime, as the Savior taught, we can continue with good cheer. I have learned that the bitter, almost unbearable pain can become sweet as you turn to your Father in heaven and plead for His comfort that comes through His plan his Son, Jesus Christ, and His Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost. What a glorious blessing this is in our lives! Wouldn't it be tragic if we didn't feel sorrow when we lose a child? How grateful I am to my Father in Heaven that He allows us to love deeply and to love eternally. How grateful I am for eternal families. How grateful I am that He has revealed once again through His living prophets the glorious plan of redemption. Remember as you attended the funeral of your loved one, the feelings in your heart as you drove away from the cemetery and looked back to see that solitary casket, wondering if your heart would break? I testify that because of Him, even our Savior Jesus Christ, those feelings of sorrow, loneliness, and despair will one day be swallowed up in a fullness of joy. I testify that we can depend on Him, and when He said, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world seeth me, but ye seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. I testify that as stated and preached my gospel, as we rely on the Atonement of Jesus Christ, He can help us endure our trials, sicknesses, and pain. We can be filled with joy, peace, and consolation. All that is unfair about life can be made right through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I testify that on that bright, glorious morning of the first resurrection, your loved ones and mine will come forth from the grave as promised by the Lord Himself, and we will have a fullness of joy. Because He lives, they and we shall live also. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In 1994, President Howard W. Hunter invited all members of the Church to establish the temple as the great symbol of our membership. Later that same year, construction on the bountiful Utah temple was completed. Like many, we were anxious to take our young family to the open house prior to the dedication. We labored diligently to prepare our children to enter the temple, praying earnestly that they would have a spiritual experience so that the temple would become a focal point in their lives. As we walked through the temple, I found myself admiring the magnificent architecture, the elegant finishes, the light shining through towering windows, and many of the inspiring paintings. Every aspect of this sacred building was truly exquisite. Stepping into the celestial room, I suddenly realized that our youngest son, six-year-old Ben, was clinging to my leg. He appeared anxious perhaps even a little troubled. "'What's wrong, son?' I whispered. "'Daddy,' he replied, "'what's happening here? I've never felt this way before.' Recognizing this was likely the first time our young son had felt the influence of the Holy Ghost in such a powerful way, I knelt down on the floor next to him. While other visitors stepped around us, Ben and I spent several minutes side by side learning about the Holy Ghost together. I was amazed at the ease with which we were able to discuss his sacred feelings. As we talked, it became clear that what was most inspiring to Ben was not what he saw, but what he felt. 
not the physical beauty around us, but the still small voice of the Spirit of God within his heart. I shared with him what I had learned from my own experiences, even as his childlike wonder reawakened in me a deep sense of gratitude for this unspeakable gift from God, the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead, and as such, like God the Father and Jesus Christ, He knows our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. The Holy Ghost loves us and wants us to be happy. Since He knows the challenges we will face, He can guide us and teach us all things we must do to return and live with our Heavenly Father once again. Unlike Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, who have glorified bodies of flesh and bones, the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit who communicates to our spirits through feelings and impressions. As a spirit being, he has the unique responsibility of being an agent through which personal revelation is received. In Scripture, the Holy Ghost is often referred to as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of promise, or simply the Spirit. The Holy Ghost works in perfect unity with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, fulfilling many important roles and distinct responsibilities. The primary purpose of the Holy Ghost is to bear witness of God the Father and of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to teach us the truth of all things. A sure witness from the Holy Ghost carries far more certainty than a witness from any other source. President Joseph Fielding Smith taught that the Spirit of God speaking to the Spirit of man has power to impart truth with greater effect and understanding then that truth can be imparted by personal contact even with heavenly beings. The Holy Ghost is also known as the Comforter. During times of trouble or despair or simply when we need to know that God is near, the Holy Ghost can lift our spirits, give us hope, and teach us the peaceable things of the kingdom, helping us feel the peace of God which passes all understanding. Several years ago, as our extended family gathered for a holiday dinner, my father began to play games with many of his grandchildren. Suddenly and without warning, he collapsed and quickly passed away. This unexpected event could have been devastating, especially for his grandchildren, raising questions that are difficult to answer. However, as we gathered our children around us, as we prayed and read the words of Book of Mormon prophets about the purpose of life, the Holy Ghost comforted each of us personally. In ways that are difficult to describe with words, the answers we sought came clearly into our hearts. We felt a peace that day that truly surpassed our understanding, yet the witness from the Holy Ghost was certain, undeniable, and true. The Holy Ghost is a teacher and a revelator. As we study, ponder, and pray about gospel truths, the Holy Ghost enlightens our minds and quickens our understanding. He causes the truth to be indelibly written in our souls and can cause a mighty change to occur in our hearts. As we share these truths with our families, with fellow members of the Church, and with friends and neighbors in our community, the Holy Ghost becomes their teacher as well, for He carries the message of the gospel unto the hearts of the children of men. The Holy Ghost inspires us to reach out to others in service. For me, the most vivid example of heeding the promptings of the Holy Ghost in the service of others 
comes from the life and ministry of President Thomas S. Monson, who said, In the performance of our responsibilities, I have learned that when we heed a silent prompting and act upon it without delay, our Heavenly Father will guide our footsteps and bless our lives and the lives of others. I know of no experience more sweet or feeling more precious than to heed a prompting only to discover that the Lord has answered another person's prayer through you." I share just one tender experience. While President Monson was serving as a bishop, he learned that a member of his ward, Mary Watson, was in the hospital. As he went to visit her, he learned that she was staying in a large room with several other patients. When he approached Sister Watson, he noticed that the patient in a neighboring bed quickly covered her head. After President Monson had visited with Sister Watson and given her a priesthood blessing, he shook her head, shook her hand, said goodbye, and prepared to leave. Then a simple but amazing thing happened. I quote now from President Monson's own recollection of this experience. I could not leave her side. It was though an unseen hand was resting on my shoulder, and I felt within my soul that I was hearing these words, Go over to the next bed where the little lady covered her face when you came in. I did so. I approached the bedside of the other patient, gently tapped her shoulder, and carefully pulled back the sheet which had covered her face. Lo and behold, she too was a member of my ward. I had not known she was a patient in the hospital. Her name was Kathleen McKee. When her eyes met mine, she exclaimed through her tears, O Bishop, when you entered that door, I felt you had come to see me and blessed me in response to my prayers. I was rejoicing inside to think that you would know that I was here. But when you stopped at the other bed, my heart sank, and I knew that you had not come to see me. President Monson continues, I said to Sister McGee, It does not matter that I I didn't know you were here. It is important, however, that our Heavenly Father knew and that you had prayed silently for a priesthood blessing. It was He who prompted me to intrude your privacy. We all have experiences with the Holy Ghost, even though we may not always recognize them. As inspired thoughts come into our minds, we know them to be true by the spiritual feelings that enter into our hearts. President Boyd K. Packer has taught, The Holy Ghost speaks with a voice that you feel more than you hear. While we speak of listening to the whisperings of the Spirit, most often, One most often describes a spiritual prompting by saying, I had a feeling. It is through these sacred feelings from the Holy Ghost that we come to know what God would have us do. For this, as stated in Scripture, is the spirit of revelation. In teaching our six-year-old son, Ben, I thought it important to differentiate between what he was feeling, which was the influence of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, which he would receive after baptism. Before baptism— All honest and sincere seekers of truth can feel the influence of the Holy Ghost from time to time. However, the opportunity to receive the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost and the fullness of all the associated blessings are available only to worthy baptized members who receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands through those holding the priesthood authority of God. Through the gift of the Holy Ghost, we receive added capacity and spiritual gifts increased revelation and protection, steady guidance and direction, and the promised blessings of sanctification and exaltation in the celestial kingdom. 
All these blessings are given as a result of our personal desire to receive them and come as we align our lives with the will of God and seek His constant direction. As I reflect back on my experience with Ben in the Bountiful Temple, I have many sweet feelings and impressions. One clear recollection is that while I was absorbed in the grandeur of what I could see, a small child near my side was recognizing the powerful feelings in his heart. With a gentle reminder, I was invited not only to pause and kneel down, but to heed the Savior's call to become as a little child, humble, meek, and ready to hear the still small voice of His Spirit. I bear witness of the living reality and divine mission of the Holy Ghost, that by the power of the Holy Ghost we may know the truth of all things. I testify that the gift of the Holy Ghost is Heavenly Father's precious and unspeakable gift to all who will come unto His Son, be baptized in His name, and receive the Holy Ghost through confirmation in His Church. Of these sacred truths, I bear personal witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I am inspired by the examples being set by the righteous members of the Church, including the noble youth. You courageously look to the Savior. You are faithful, obedient, and pure. The blessings you receive because of your goodness affect not only your lives, but also my life and the lives of countless others in profound but often unknown ways. A few years ago, I was in line to make a purchase at my local grocery store. Ahead of me stood a young woman about 15 years old. She appeared confident and happy. I noticed her T-shirt and couldn't resist talking to her. I began, You're from out of state, aren't you? She was surprised by my question and replied, Yes, I am. I'm from Colorado. How did you know? I explained, Because of your T-shirt. I made my accurate supposition after reading the words on her shirt. I'm a Mormon. Are you? I continued, I must tell you that I am impressed by your confidence to stand out and wear such a bold declaration. I see a difference in you, and I wish every young woman and every member of the Church could have your same conviction and confidence. Our purchases completed, we said goodbye and parted. Yet for days and weeks after this random, everyday moment, I found myself seriously reflecting upon this encounter. I wondered how this young girl from Colorado came to possess such confidence in her identity as a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I couldn't help but wonder what meaningful phrase I would figuratively choose to have printed on my T-shirt, reflecting my belief and testimony. In my mind, I considered many possible sayings. Eventually, I came upon an ideal statement I would proudly wear. I'm a Mormon. I know it. I live it. I love it. Today, I'd like to focus my remarks around this bold, hopeful statement. The first part of the statement is a self-assured, unapologetic declaration. I'm a Mormon. 
just as the young woman I met in the grocery store was not afraid to let the world know she was a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I hope we will never be afraid or reluctant to acknowledge I'm a Mormon. We should be confident, as was the Apostle Paul when he proclaimed, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. As members, we are followers of our Savior Jesus Christ. Such conversion and confidence is the result of diligent and deliberate effort. It is individual. It is the process of a lifetime. The next part of the statement affirms, I know it. In today's world, there are a multitude of activities, subjects, and interests vying for every minute of our attention. With so many distractions, do we have the strength, discipline, and commitment to remain focused on what matters most? Are we as well-versed in gospel truths as we are in our studies, careers, hobbies, sports, or our texts and tweets? Do we actively seek to find answers to our questions by feasting on the scriptures and the teachings of the prophets? Do we seek the confirmation of the Spirit? The importance of gaining knowledge is an eternal principle. The prophet Joseph Smith loved knowledge for its righteous power. He said, Knowledge is necessary to life and godliness. Hear, all ye brethren, this grand key. Knowledge is the power of God unto salvation. All truth and knowledge is important, but amidst the constant distractions of our daily lives, we must especially pay attention to increasing our gospel knowledge so we can understand how to apply gospel principles to our lives. As our gospel knowledge increases, we will be able to begin to feel confident in our testimonies and be able to state, I know it. Next is the statement, I live it. The scriptures teach that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. We live the gospel and become doers of the word by exercising faith, being obedient, lovingly serving others, and following our Savior's example. We act with integrity and do what we know is right at all times and in all things and in all places, no matter who may or may not be watching. In our mortal condition, no one is perfect. Even in our most diligent efforts to live the gospel, all of us will make mistakes and all of us will sin. What a comforting assurance it is to know that through our Savior's redeeming sacrifice, we can be forgiven and made clean again. This process of true repentance and forgiveness strengthens our testimony and our resolve to obey the Lord's commandments and live our life according to gospel standards. When I think of the phrase, I live it, I am reminded of a young woman I met named Kerrigan. Kerrigan wrote, I've been a member of the Church for a little over a year. 
For me, when investigating, one sign that this was the true church came because I felt I'd finally found a church that taught modesty and standards. I've seen with my own eyes what happens to people when they disregard commandments and choose the wrong path. I made up my mind long ago to live high moral standards. I feel so blessed to have found the truth and to have been baptized. I am so happy. The final phrase in my de declarative statement is, I love it. Gaining a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and diligently living gospel principles in our everyday lives leads many members of the Church to exclaim enthusiastically, I love the gospel. This feeling comes as we feel the Holy Ghost witnessing to us that we are children of our Heavenly Father. He is mindful of us, and we are on the right path. Our love for the gospel grows as we experience the love of our Father in heaven and the peace promised by the Savior as we show Him we are willing to obey and follow Him. At different times of our lives, whether we are new converts to the Church or lifelong members, we may find that this vibrant enthusiasm has faded. Sometimes this happens when times are challenging and we must practice patience. Sometimes it happens at the peak of our prosperity and abundance. Whenever I have this feeling, I know I need to refocus my efforts on increasing my gospel knowledge and living gospel principles more fully in my life. One of the most effective but sometimes difficult gospel principles to apply is humility and submission to the will of God. In Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, He expressed to the Father, Not my will, but thine be done. This should be our prayer as well. Oftentimes it is in these quiet, prayerful moments that we feel encircled in Heavenly Father's love, and those joyful, loving feelings are restored. At a Young Women Leadership meeting in Eugene, Oregon, I had the privilege of meeting and talking with Sister Cammie Wilberger. The story Sister Wilberger shared with me was a witness of the power and blessing of one young woman's knowing, living, and loving the gospel. Sister Wilberger's 19-year-old daughter, Brooke, was tragically killed several years ago while on summer break after her first year at university. Sister Wilberger recalled, It was a difficult and dark time for our family. However, Brooke had given us a great gift. We didn't recognize this as she was growing up, but every single year and moment of her brief life, Brooke had given us the greatest gift a daughter could give her parents. Brooke was a righteous daughter of God, and because of this gift, and especially because of the enabling power of the Atonement, I have had strength, comfort, and the Savior's promised peace. I have no question where Brooke is now and look forward to our loving reunion." End quote. I have a testimony of our Heavenly Father's great plan of eternal happiness. I know that He knows us and loves us. 
I know that he has prepared a prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to encourage us and help guide us back to him. I pray that each of us will put forth the effort to be able to confidently declare, I'm a Mormon. I know it. I live it. And I love it. And I say these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. President Monson, we love, honor, and sustain you. This historically significant announcement with respect to missionary service is inspiring. I can remember the excitement in 1960 when the age for young men serving was reduced from 20 years of age to 19. I arrived in the British Mission as a newly called 20-year-old. The first 19-year-old in our mission was Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, an incredible addition. <laughs> he was a few months shy of being 20. Then over the course of a year, many more 19-year-olds arrived. They were obedient and faithful missionaries, and the work progressed. I am confident that an even greater harvest will be achieved now as righteous, committed missionaries fulfill the Savior's commandment to preach His gospel. In my view, those of you in the rising generation are better prepared than any previous generation. Your knowledge of the scriptures is particularly impressive. However, the challenges your generation faces as you prepare for service are similar to those faced by all members of the Church. We are all aware the culture in most of the world is not conducive to righteousness or spiritual commitment. Throughout history, Church leaders have warned the people and taught repentance. In the Book of Mormon, Alma the Younger was so concerned about unrighteousness and lack of commitment that he resigned as chief judge the leader of the people of Nephi, and concentrated all his efforts on his prophetic calling. In one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture, Alma proclaims, If ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? Local leaders across the world report that when viewed as a whole, Church members, especially our youth, have never been stronger. But they almost always raise two concerns. First, the challenge of increased unrighteousness in the world, and second, the apathy and lack of commitment of some members. They seek counsel about how to help members to follow the Savior and achieve a deep and lasting conversion. This question, can ye feel so now, rings across the centuries. With all that we have received in this dispensation, including the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of spiritual gifts, and the indisputable blessings of heaven, Alma's challenge has never been more important. Soon after Ezra Taft Benson was called as an apostle in 1943, President George Albert Smith counseled, Your mission is to warn the people in as kind a way as possible that repentance will be the only panacea for the ills of the world. When this statement was made, we were in the midst of the conflagration of World War II. Today, moral deterioration has escalated. One prominent writer recently said, 
Everyone knows the culture is poisonous, and nobody expects that to change. The constant curtail of violence and immorality in music, entertainment, art, and other media in our day-to-day culture is unprecedented. This was dramatically described by a highly respected Baptist theologian when he stated, the spiritual immune system of an entire civilization has been wounded. It is not surprising that some in the Church believe they can't answer Alma's question with a resounding yes. They do not feel so now. They feel they are in a spiritual drought. Others are angry, hurt, or disillusioned. If these descriptions apply to you, it is important to evaluate why you cannot feel so now. Many who are in a spiritual drought and lack commitment have not necessarily been involved in major sins or transgressions, but they have made unwise unwise choices. Some are casual in their observance of sacred covenants. Others spend most of their time giving first-class devotion to lesser causes. Some allow intense cultural or political views to weaken their allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some have immersed themselves in Internet materials that magnify, exaggerate, and in some cases invent shortcomings of early Church leaders. Then they draw incorrect conclusions that can affect testimony. Any who have made these choices can repent and be spiritually renewed. Immersion in the scriptures is essential for spiritual nourishment. The Word of God inspires commitment and acts as a healing balm for hurt feelings, anger, or disillusionment. When our commitment is diminished for any reason, part of the solution is repentance. Commitment and repentance are closely intertwined. C.S. Lewis, the striving, pragmatic Christian writer, poignantly framed the issue. He asserted that Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. But until people know and, and feel they need forgiveness, Christianity does not speak to them. He stated, When you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. The Prophet Joseph pointed out that before your baptism, you could be on neutral ground between good and evil. But when you joined the Church, you enlisted to serve God. When you did that, you left the neutral ground, and you can never go back. His counsel was that we must never forsake the Master. Alma emphasizes that through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, the arms of mercy are extended to those who repent. He then asks penetrating and ultimate questions, such as, Are we prepared to meet God? Are we keeping ourselves blameless? We should all contemplate these questions. Alma's own experience in failing to follow his faithful father and then coming to a dramatic understanding of how much he needed forgiveness and what it meant to sing the song of redeeming love is powerful and compelling. While anything that lessens commitment is of consequence, Two relevant challenges are both prevalent and significant. The first is unkindness, violence, and domestic abuse. The second is sexual immorality and impure thoughts. These often precede and are at the root of the choice to be less committed. How we treat those closest to us is of fundamental importance. Violence, abuse, lack of civility, and disrespect in the home are not acceptable. Not acceptable for adults and not acceptable for the rising generation.
My father was not active in the Church, but was a remarkably good example, especially in his treatment of my mother. He used to say, God will hold men responsible for every tear they cause their wives to shed. This same concept is emphasized in the family, a proclamation of the world. It reads, Those who abuse spouse or offspring will one day stand accountable before God. Regardless of the culture in which we are raised and whether our parents did or did not abuse us, we must not physically, emotionally, or verbally abuse anyone else. The need for civility in society has never been more important. The foundation of kindness and civility begins in our homes. It is not surprising that our public discourse has declined in equal measure with the breakdown of the family. The family is the foundation for love and for maintaining spirituality. The family promotes an atmosphere where religious observance can flourish. There is indeed beauty all around when there is love at home. Sexual immorality and impure thoughts violate the standard established by the Savior. We were warned at the beginning of this dispensation that sexual immorality would be perhaps the greatest challenge. Such conduct will, without repentance, cause a spiritual drought and loss of commitment. Movies, TV, and the Internet often convey degrading messages and images. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf and I were recently in an Amazon jungle village and observed satellite dishes even on some of the small, simply built huts. We rejoiced at the wonderful information available in this remote area. We also recognized there is virtually no place on earth that cannot be impacted by salacious, immoral, and titillating images. This is one reason why pornography has become such a plague in our day. I recently had an insightful conversation with a 15-year-old Aaronic priesthood holder. He helped me understand how easy it is in this Internet age for young people to almost inadvertently be exposed to impure and even pornographic images. He pointed out that for most principles the Church teaches, there is at least some recognition in society at large that violating these principles can have devastating effects on health and well-being. He mentioned cigarette smoking, drug use, and alcohol consumption by young people. But he noted that there is no corresponding outcry or even a significant warning from society at large about pornography or immorality. My dear brothers and sisters, this young man's analysis is correct. What is the answer? For years, prophets and apostles have taught the importance of religious observance in the home. Parents, the days are long past when regular, active participation in Church meetings and programs, though essential, can fulfill your sacred responsibility to teach your children to live moral, righteous lives and walk uprightly before the Lord. With President Monson's announcement this morning, it is essential that this be faithfully accomplished in homes, which are places of refuge where kindness, forgiveness, truth, and righteousness prevail. Parents must have the courage to filter or monitor Internet access, television, movies, and music. Parents must have the courage to say no, defend truth, and bear powerful testimony. Your children need to know that you have faith in the Savior, love your Heavenly Father, and sustain the leaders of the Church. Spiritual maturity must flourish in our homes. 
My hope is that no one will leave this conference without understanding that the moral issues of our day must be addressed in the family. Bishops, priesthood, and auxiliary leaders need to support families and make sure that spiritual principles are taught. Home and visiting teachers can assist, especially with children of single parents. The young man I mentioned earnestly asked if the Apostles knew how early in life teaching and protecting against pornography and impure thoughts should start. With emphasis, he stated that in some areas, even before youth graduate from primary, is not too early. Youth who have been exposed to immoral images at a very early age are terrified that they may have already disqualified themselves for missionary service and sacred covenants. As a result, their faith can be severely impaired. I want to assure you young people, as Alma taught, that through repentance you can qualify for all the blessings of heaven. That is what the Savior's Atonement is all about. Please talk with your parents or a trusted advisor and counsel with your bishop. When it comes to morality, some adults believe that adherence to a single overriding humanitarian project or principle nullifies the need to comply with the Savior's teachings. They say to themselves that sexual misconduct is a small thing if I am a kind and charitable person. Such thinking is a gross self-deception. Some young people inform me that in our current culture it is not cool to try too hard in many areas, including living strictly in accordance with righteous principles. Please do not fall into this trap. At baptism, we promise to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, having the determination to serve Him to the end. Such a covenant requires courageous effort, commitment, and integrity if we are to continue to sing the song of redeeming love and stay truly converted. An historic example of commitment to be strong and immovable for all ages was portrayed by a British Olympian who competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, France. Eric Little was the son of a Scottish missionary to China and a devoutly religious man. He infuriated the British leadership of the Olympics by refusing, even under enormous pressure, to run in a preliminary 100-meter race held on Sunday. Ultimately, he was victorious in the 400-meter race. Little's example of refusing to run on Sunday was particularly inspiring. Depictions and memorials in his honor have referred to the inspirational words from Isaiah, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Little's admirable conduct was very influential in our youngest son's decision to not participate in Sunday sports and, more importantly, to separate himself from unrighteousness and worldly conduct. He used the quote from Isaiah for his yearbook contribution. Eric Little left a powerful example of determination and commitment to principle. As our youth follow President Monson's counsel by preparing to serve missions, and as we all live the principles the Savior taught and prepare to meet God, we win a much more important race. We will have the Holy Ghost as our guide for spiritual direction. For any whose lives are not in order, remember it is never too late to make the Savior's Atonement the foundation of our faith and lives. In the words of Isaiah, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. 
My sincere prayer is that each of us will take any necessary action to fill the Spirit now so we can sing the song of redeeming love with all our hearts. I testify of the power of the Savior's Atonement. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.